The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. I'd like to welcome our men and women comrades. Um, I just want to say that I learned at John Rydell's fantastic meeting on the revolutionary leader Clara Zetkin yesterday, I think it was yesterday, that that was how she introduced meetings um, that she spoke before um, back in the early 1900s. He explained to me that it's the equivalent of saying compañera or compañeros um, in Spanish and is meant to invite women and men, as well, women as well as men, into full political activity. So I thought it would be a good way to start. <laughs> just one of the fantastic meetings I went to throughout this weekend. From Sherry Wolf on sexuality and socialism on to Heather Rogers at what felt like the crack of dawn this morning on why green capitalism is not only not a solution to the problems of the environment, but actually stands in the way of us finding the fundamental solutions that are necessary. But the thing about this weekend was that it wasn't just what we learned inside the meetings, but it was what we learned in the hallways, in the bars, in the late night discussions. I met people from Arkansas. I'm <laughs> Arkansas. Tennessee, Florida, Indiana, um, in Illinois, Illinois, obviously. We're in Illinois. <laughs> Boston. Closer? It was incredibly inspiring to hear the dozens of stories um, that really brought to vivid life the dramatic sea change that has taken place in U.S. society and continues to take place that Obama's election back in November was just one, if not right now, the sharpest expression of. Um, and if you're anything like me, you're probably exhausted, although a little less so after the chanting, um, a little bleary-eyed, <laughs> but you're also stronger in your convictions than you were when you came in. And you've been opened up to new questions and new ideas that you want to explore further. And you are ready to fight. And so that, that brings us to our final rally today. Where do we go from here? Um, things are changing incredibly rapidly in our society. I was at the meeting last night. And when Bezad said, we met here last year while Bush was still president, I was like, Bush was still president? <laughs> it seems like a long and distant nightmare ago. <laughs> um, things are in a state of constant change, and so much has happened, whether it's the occupation at Republic Windows and Doors factory, <laughs> the massive outpouring on such a large scale in response to Israel's barbaric invasion of Gaza right around the New Year, <laughs> or the from how do we understand Obama's health care bill to why is it that most people think the war is ending and yet we're continuing to escalate the war in Afghanistan, um, to how do we actually not only win the fight for gay marriage, but take it nationally and abolish all of the laws um, against gays, lesbians, bisexual, and transgender people in this country. So it's in that context that I think it's fitting to introduce our first speaker, Alan Moss, the editor of Socialist Worker, and, and the editor of SocialistWorker.org. <laughs> so, so 
socialistworker.org went daily on May 1st of last year, it is reported on all of these developments. It has brought to life the stories and given voice to our side. When there was a movement that erupted literally the next day around Proposition 8 in California, socialistworker.org carried an interview with the person who organized 10,000 people on Facebook to come out and protest. It was on the cutting edge of the new movements that are being built in society today. When Oscar Grant was murdered on a BART platform in Oakland, in California, it brought on the friends and the people who um, witnessed it and talked about how we're gonna build the struggle against police brutality and get rid of it once and for all. It's told the stories of the other side, the people who've been left behind in this economic crisis. It's gone to the food stamp lines. It's gone to the people who are hungry. It's gone to the people who are being evicted from their homes and asked, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? What do you think needs to be done? Unlike the mainstream media, that is what Socialist Worker does for our side. Um, there's someone who came from New York City who I was just talking to before this meeting and he wants to be an independent journalist and I asked him what he liked about the conference. He was like, it was so amazing meeting and hearing Jeremy Scahill and Amy Goodman and Anand Gopal and seeing the face of independent journalism and I heard amazing things about those meetings. But I said to him, you have to meet Alan Moss. <laughs> <laughs> editorial team at Socialist Worker have taken Socialist Worker from what, when I first started reading it in the early 1990s, was a monthly at best um, newspaper. Late. <laughs> it was always monthly, but sometimes late. Um, to a daily website and a weekly newspaper. Not only has Socialist Worker been a voice for our side, but I believe that it can be an organizer for our side. Welcome, uh, welcome Alan Moss. Well, I do want to start by quoting a, a newspaper that really, I think, you know, we all agree is, you know, hard-hitting reporting, it's probing analysis is something that makes it stand out from the rest of the media. And of course, I'm talking about The Onion. Um, a couple weeks ago, The Onion reported, in a slight shift from his campaign trail promise, President Barack Obama announced that his administration's message of change has been modified to the somewhat more restrained slogan, relatively minor readjustments in certain favorable policy areas. <laughs> you seeing relatively minor readjustments would be better than what we're actually getting, right? Think of the list of things. Sherry Wolf talked about it last night about the Defense of Marriage Act, the uh, banning the federal government from recognizing the marriages of same-sex couples where they were legally performed. And faced with a challenge to DOMA, the Obama Justice Department sends what? A holdover from the Bush administration as a lawyer to go to court and argue that DOMA is just fine, thank you. Even though Obama promised to overturn uh, DOMA. And they didn't just argue it on the basis of a technicality. They argued, uh, came in full board to defend the constitutionality of, of the Defense of Marriage Act. And that's only three days after the administration did the same with the don't ask, don't tell policy. Another anti-gay policy that Barack Obama promised to overturn as president. Another anti-gay policy that Barack Obama's lawyers defended as, quote, rationally related to the government's legitimate interest in military discipline and cohesion. 
I mean, the list goes on and on if you think about it. The military tribunals, the defense of, of torture. It's almost down the line on the positions of, of, of the Bush security state. Think about Afghanistan, Pakistan, Palestine. The Obama administration on another front even lined up with the coal companies in improving a bunch of permits to basically blow the tops off mountains in order to get at the coal uh, 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 with devastating consequences to the environment. And of course, uh, looming above it all is the bailout, you know, of, of, of uh, the Wall Street bailout. I, I don't know about other people, but it did take a while for it to sink in for me that no, it wasn't just that I didn't understand this especially complex maneuver that the Obama administration was carrying out, that it wasn't that, you know, there was something I couldn't quite understand, but no, they really were putting in place precisely the same policy as the Bush administration put in place, exactly as Harry Paulson drew it, uh, Henry Paulson drew it up with Ben Bernanke and, lo and behold, Tim Geithner. Right, as Joel Geyer pointed out at one point, the change that exists now is that Obama administration policy is being written by uh, Ben Bernanke, Tim Geithner, and Larry Summers. Uh, that's, that's the difference. And the lesson here, I think, is that even when faced with this catastrophic financial crisis, even handed a historic opportunity uh, and vast support for fundamental change, this is an administration that reaches instinctively for the neoliberal pro-free market triangulated policies that it's most comfortable with. Now, that fact doesn't mean that we should expect the Obama administration to start descending into Bush administration territory in terms of their popularity. Certainly not as long as their opposition is the Republican Party as presently <laughs> constituted. I mean, people talked about it last night and it's just astonishing. You can't even, uh, just to, to try to choose the, the, the uh, preposterous quotations uh, uh, from these people. My, one of my favorites is from John Boehner, the uh, uh, House, House Republican leader, who says, the stimulus, the budget, it's all one big down payment on a new American socialist experiment. <laughs> Which makes me wonder when the old socialist experiment was in America. They're laying the groundwork, he says, for everything, expanded welfare, government run, healthcare, green John Boehner, is one of the more mild-mannered and less scary of the bunch of Republicans that are in there right now. The people who welcome the speech of uh, the actor John Voight, a completely deranged <laughs> address. And I'm not saying that as a term of abuse. I think it actually was clinically defined, deranged, to fight Barack Obama's attempt to turn, turn the country to Marxism. So the truth is, as long as they're the opposition, it's going to be obvious why Obama and the Democrats can still have high, high popularity ratings. But it's, it's a pretty small comfort, I think we all have to agree, that while the right wing is still in the ditch, the scale of the crisis and the, the urgency of the need for the change that the Obama administration uh, uh, campaign seemed to promise uh, is, is still there. And that, really, that scale of the crisis is, is, is sometimes difficult to get your mind around. Just what is happening uh, in, in, in this society. It reminded me of, of something that Mike Davis wrote early on, where he made a comparison of like encountering and trying to understand the economic crisis we're facing now with the first US Army surveyors when they encountered the Grand Canyon. And there was simply nothing in their experience to give them the words or the concepts to convey the vastness of what, what was taking place. And you know, as a journalist, I thought, man, that, I wish I wrote that. That's a really good metaphor. <laughs> but another side of me thought, well, maybe that's a 
little bit over the top, as Mike Davis is sometimes pro prone to. But the truth is that I keep coming back to that idea over and over again. I mean, Allison McKenna in Chicago was telling me about the cuts uh, in the Illinois child welfare system that are being proposed, the very real threat that $460 million will be taken out of this program. Almost 1,200 layout, layoffs in the state of Illinois, which amounts to 38% of the people who are employed and work for the Department of Children and Family Services in the state of Illinois. Right, an agency that's in charge of dealing with the most vulnerable in society, with the most, people with the most acute needs of all, being cut almost in half. It's hard to, to get your mind around what that actually is gonna mean. And of course, we know that it isn't just in Illinois, that you could repeat this for every state that people are here, here from, and by every indicator nationally. You know, the latest statistics showing that wages in the first three months of this year were cut by American business by an average of 6.2%. The number of homes in foreclosure in May was up 18% from the year earlier. And that suffering stretches right around the world with the World Bank uh, further lowering its estimate on the world economy uh, to a 3% decline this year, an almost unprecedented uh, uh, prediction. The most obscene part is not only that this uh, uh, crisis never had to be. Uh, you know, the that, that Wall Street didn't have to be turned into a casino betting someone else's money or, or really everyone else's money on, on the housing bubble. Not only does it never have to happen, but it doesn't have to keep happening right now, right? I mean, I had another Grand Canyon kind of moment when we were working on Socialist Worker uh, and, and producing Adam Turrell's article on how the Point oh 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 three percent lives. We could have called it the ten richest Americans, but Michael Bloomberg himself could cover the entire unprecedented deficit in the city budget for each and every year for the next sixteen years. That's how much he's actually worth. And so, you know, you're told. The city unions are told that there's nothing that can be done, you know, that this is just the way it is, there's a crisis, it's like bad weather. It's just happening and we all have to, to, to sacrifice. It drives you crazy because the first rule of these calls for sacrifice at all times is that they ignore the people who can afford to make the most sacrifices of, of, of all, like Michael Bloomberg or like Wall Street and the AIG executives who just couldn't bear uh, to sacrifice their millions in, in, in bonuses, even after the U.S. government had to step in to uh, uh, save them. That's the reality of the twisted society we live in. And there's something about that. There's something about those realities coming to the front and emerging in, in, in such a glaring way that there's a growing recognition and a growing anger about those things that is a change from the past and that is not going away, that is not turning back in any sort of way. The certainties about the superiority of the free market, that capitalism is the natural and only way to run society, all, you know, that the idea that if you work hard enough, all these ideas that were never fully true, certainly not for everybody and not even for most people in most times, you know, even in the best of times, 
those ideas are being exposed. And that's what's at the root of what people talked about last night, an ideological crisis that is as big as the, the uh, uh, economic crisis in, in many ways right now, with the, the poll that everyone's familiar with about capitalism and socialism, of one third of people under 30 seeing socialism as a preferable alternative to, to capitalism. And in a lot of ways, that same sort of idea is what drove the vote for Barack Obama, a recognition of society going in the wrong way, and at last a, a feeling that something could be done to change that, that direction. And that, I think you have to summarize as a sign of people wanting to be idealistic. Right? I don't mean idealism like the philosophy and you know the uh, idealism versus materialism. I mean the commonplace definition of people having ideals and hoping to see those ideals realized in the world. I think that's the meaning of the polls that you know see an alternative to capitalism or that it's a good thing that there's an African American president and that diversity in government might be a good thing. You know, or the shift in favor of, of, of same-sex marriage uh, and extending to, to the election of Obama itself. We talked about this before and during the, the election, and it's worth maybe reiterating it now, uh, of a, the group of people who became politicized around this election and who began to see themselves as organizers, and in this case, organizing a vote for Barack Obama, but nevertheless saw themselves as, as, as becoming political. And that's an important change that isn't going uh, away. Now, idealism has a bad reputation <laughs> because if you're idealistic, that means you're not being realistic, which in the opinion of a lot of people is about the worst possible thing that, that you could be. For example, Barney Frank, the congressman from, from Massachusetts who gave a commencement speech at, at American University in Washington, D.C. Now remember, this is a veteran, and certainly not the worst of the bunch in the Democratic Party. This is a veteran of the liberal wing of the Democrats. will have to satisfy yourself with having made bad situations a little bit better. Now that is, you know, some call to arms, isn't it? You know? Workers of the world, you know, you have a world that's just a teensy bit better, less bad, you know, to win. Here's what Barney Frank has to say about idealism. Ideals that are not implemented do nothing but make you feel morally superior. They never fed a hungry kid. They never cleaned up a polluted river. They never built a road that got people anywhere. Idealism without pragmatism is just a way to flatter your ego. So there you have it, just a way to flatter your ego, I suppose as opposed to the accomplishments of Barney Frank. <laughs> who pragmatically engineered the giveaway of hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars to the banks, who pragmatically and realistically insisted that marriage equality had to wait, who idealistically, I guess, voted against funding the war on Afghanistan a month ago when it didn't matter, but when it did matter a week ago, changed his mind and became pragmatic and pragmatically voted for funding that war. I mean, based on the record of the past few months, Barney Frank has it completely upside down. It's not idealism that never fed a hungry kid. It's being pragmatic that steals money from hungry children and gives it away to the bank. You know? Pragmatism not only doesn't clean up a polluted river, it fills it up with the debris of a mountaintop blown off to get at the coal. That's what pragmatism is about. And even more importantly, idealism is not only flatter, not, not flattering your ego, but the hope that something can be different 
The determination to stand up for ideals is the first ingredient in every social movement that we, that we know of in this country and in history. If you were Rosa Parks in Montgomery, Alabama, and you were ordered to give up your bus seat to a white man, the most pragmatic thing to do would be to give it up. Because what are you going to do as one individual to stop Jim Crow segregation? What's the point of going to jail? Is it realist when realistically no one's going to stand up and protest with you? If you're an auto worker in Flint, Michigan in 1936, the pragmatic thing to do is to avoid all those unrealistic people who are asking you to join the union and making totally unrealistic plans to occupy a factory owned by the most important corporation in America that will surely the cops will stop. It was those movements of people acting unpragmatically and unrealistically who changed history because of their idealism and principle and their commitment that a society doesn't have to be this way. When you think about it, it's not really surprising that someone like Barney Frank and the Democrats who are like him, uh, uh, but, but whose entire worldview is straitjacketed by this idea of, of, of uh, what's realistic, why they make a habit of concession and retreat in the period we're in right now. Because for example, if you're gonna stand up and defy the healthcare industry on healthcare reform at a time when the industry is spending millions of dollars on lobbying, paying millions to its public relations firms, all kinds of money to promote the myths and distortions and lies to defy that isn't pragmatic at, at all. It's so much easier when you're motivated by pragmatism rather than principle for us. We have to make the path of least resistance the path of most resistance. It has to become the path of resistance of our side of struggle and mobilization. There is absolutely nothing inevitable, if there's any lesson of the last few months, nothing inevitable about winning change under the Democrats. But it is true that there are presidents and congresses who are more susceptible to pressure because they owe their election to a base of voters, that that's been the perception of what their campaign is about, and they need to maintain that conception because the scale of discontent is so high. But without the pressure, mobilized so that it's felt in Washington, and not only in Washington, but the corporate headquarters, in university administration buildings, in school board meetings, and unless that pressure is felt, I mean, you know, there's no other way to say it, but without struggle, there is no progress. That's the fundamental point, since I've been paraphrasing Frederick Douglass for the last, like, 15 or 20 minutes, I might as well give him some credit. Without struggle, there is no progress. You know, we know that we're coming out of a time when the bitterness with how society is organized is reached a new pitch. But that bitterness and anger hasn't yet been matched by struggle, except in a few cases. And it's also a time when the left organizations, whether they're liberal, progressive, revolutionary, socialist, the whole span of the broad left is emerging from a period of retreat. And so we see so much that's still tentative and conservative, uh, especially the biggest of them, the, the, the unions, still stuck in, in, in the past. And there's simply no shortcut to overcoming this. What there is, is building the struggles that exist now and relating to the groups of people emerging who want to do something to change the world. No matter how small or medium-sized or medium-sized, and then they get small, and then they get medium-sized again. There's no uh, uh, way around it, because right now, that's setting, setting the stage for what's to come. I and mean, one thing I know from working 
on, on socialistworker.org is, you know, you can get suckered into seeing the, 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 what's happening only in terms of the narrow debate that's allowed in the mainstream media. And I think that's what a lot of people see. But we know from Socialist Worker that there are all kinds of struggles and, and politicization, radicalization that's happening outside of that, the, the struggles that break out. Like the UC Berkeley workers fresh from a contract victory who defended a fellow worker detained by, by ICE with the help of the UC Berkeley administration. Or the teachers in Los Angeles fighting a contract injunction that would have bankrupted the union if they'd gone out on a one-day strike. That's how seriously the threat of a one-day strike is taken in, in, in these times. So the Stelladora strikers in, in New York, or the activists of a town in New York or Florida who decide that they want to form a socialist group. We know that not all of these struggles are going to win or that they're going to continue and you know, form an organization and, and continue a, a, on a regular basis. They'll go up and they'll go down. But we do know that they all contribute to the building of, of the future struggles. That's the picture that's beneath what you see if you watch CNN, which I sincerely hope that you don't. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's not always easy to understand how to relate to those opportunities because a more knowledgeable core of socialists or really to try to do all of those things together but in different proportions and to get the balance right at any particular given point in time. And this isn't just a challenge for our organization. It's for the whole left in this country that's getting up out of bed after a long uh, and difficult uh, uh, era. But it, it means the first step, as Sharon Smith said last night, is there's absolutely no excuse for anyone on that left to not be getting out of bed right now because the opportunities are so vast. means that there's a lot to relearn and there are going to be false steps as well as true ones. A lot of steps that won't get taken out of fear or a lack of preparation. But the point is that there is some course, some, some course to be taken and taken not, not taken right now, not tomorrow or next week or, or next, next month. I was struck in a socialist worker story about the sit-in that took place at the San Diego County building uh, the day after California Supreme Court decided against Proposition 8. It was 60 people sitting in to demand marriage licenses in San Diego. And in between the chanting, the demonstrators spoke individually about what brought them together, um, but they also read from articles and essays from the ISR, for example. The most popular passage was from Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. This wait has almost always meant never. What we can see, whether it's the ongoing movement around marriage equality or in the victory of a struggle like uh, Republic Windows and Doors that we saw uh, uh, on film last night, or on the streets of Iran today demanding that democracy means something, or all the other struggles that go on in this, in, in this country, what we, can see, what we can see is that there's more and more people who are tired of waiting, who are tired of waiting, and that it's time for us to meet those people to convince them of socialism and to be a part of a socialist alternative and, and the left in this country, and then to fight the struggles of today and to fight the struggles of the future. Thanks.
wanted to invite Dan Keefe up to the mic very quickly. Hey folks, my name is Dan. I'm from uh, an organizer with the Justice for Jason campaign. Um, a year and a half ago, uh, about February 2008, a black student at UMass was the victim of a vicious hate crime by two drunk bigots. Since then, he's become the victim of a racist UMass Police Department and further a victim of a racist district attorney and a racist selective prosecution. He's now facing the racist logic um, embedded within the criminal justice system. The, the lawyers have now filed a motion to dismiss on the grounds that this has been a racist selective prosecution. And just as importantly um, is the grassroots campaign outside and in the streets that in many ways is creating this space for Jason's lawyers to take such aggressive postures. Um, and so, while we have a great legal team, they cost a lot of money, and so what I really encourage you to do, I'm making an urgent plea to check out the table in the back. Raise it, we're, we're trying to raise over $60,000 in legal defense fees. Jason's family is a working class immigrant family. They're rocked with the amount of money they have to pay for what this travesty of justice. Please check out our table. We're selling t-shirts for $10. Um, we're asking for any donation that you can give. If every person here gave a couple dollars, it would raise a thousand dollars in no time. Please, please check it out and help us win justice for Jason. Thank you. Thanks to the comrades doing that work. It's very important. Um, another uh, and fundraising announcement. Um, people may have read uh, in Social Worker and other places that George Galloway um, from Britain is leading a delegation called Viva Palestina um, to bring urgently needed humanitarian aid um, to the people of Gaza. If you're from the Chicago area, there will be a fundraiser taking place for Viva Palestina in downtown Chicago, Saturday, June 27th. You can find out more information by going to vivapalestinaus.org, or you can see Eric or Bezad, who are supposed Bezad is there, and Eric is there. Oh, either side of the room. Go whichever way you want. <laughs> um, okay, so I'd like to now introduce our next, next speaker, Ahmed Shaki. Many of you will know him as the author of Black Liberation and Socialism. If you do not, and you have not yet read the book, I urge you to go out and buy it from Haymarket today. It is an excellent account of the history of the struggle for black liberation in this country and the role that socialists have played in that and the fight for socialism as part of the struggle for black liberation, the struggle for black liberation as integral to the struggle for socialism. It's an excellent book. Um, but many of you may not know that he is also the editor of the International Socialist Review, otherwise known as the ISR. <laughs> the ISR was founded in 1997, and I don't think we could have imagined the role that it play, would be playing on building the left today. I've met people this weekend um, from somewhat far-flung places who first learned about this conference by picking up a copy of the ISR on a Borders or a Barnes and Noble bookstore. It's nice to know that where we can't have physical socialists 
to begin the discussion um, about rebuilding the left in the US today. We can bring the magazines into bookstores in every corner of this country so that the people who are looking for an alternative have a place to find it and have a place to go. And that's one of the roles that this magazine has played. People should check out the current issue with stuff on what is social as well as the theoretical means to tackle new ones. It will stake out an argument that the working class is key to transforming society that revolution, not peacefield reforms, is the only way to eliminate the profit system, that only an international struggle of workers, which challenges all forms of sexual, racial, and national oppression, can ever hope to win. And finally, that socialists must build an organization rooted in the day-to-day -day struggles of workers themselves to overthrow capitalism and build society anew. Overthrowing capitalism and building society anew remains a task for us, and it's one that Ahmed has been committed to for the last 32 years. Please welcome him. No, just make sure that my happy Father's Day balloon <laughs> is safe. Comrades, I'm, I'm going to speak uh, briefly uh, partially because of my condition, when Alan referred to the left needing to get out of bed, <laughs> how difficult that is, muscles atrophy, and, and so on. I've had eight months uh, in bed. It's given me a new eight months in bed and in a wheelchair. Uh, so I am as ready as you are to develop our muscles, <laughs> to kind of wake up, uh, seize the reins, and uh, move forward. What I want to try and do is to, to really do three things. First, to give uh, the first... Uh, accounting, our first accounting of the attendance at socialism. Secondly, to take up an aspect which we haven't discussed at all, which is the international presence uh, of comrades, which I think is important for people to know. And lastly, to summarize the core argument that we've been trying to make all weekend. So I'll begin with the first. Uh, according to the registrar of socialism, um, socialism this year is smaller than last year. Okay, I had to start it like that. Uh, is 917 people registered. <laughs> So that is, I think, a, uh, such a collective effort uh, that comrades ought to be very pleased with the result, and everybody who attended should be pleased, I hope, uh, in, in having gotten something uh, out of the attendance. I'm told, and Bezad can correct me uh, if I'm wrong, that of the 682 pre-registrations, some 20 didn't show. So those are the figures compared with an estimated 1,000-plus last year. And of course, we have a second socialism uh, to, uh, taking place in two weeks in San Francisco. In future socialisms, we may have to uh, highlight some of these guests that we have more clearly uh, in that many uh, comrades uh, from countries around the world attended socialism and spoke, but we are such a rapidly evolving, developing, and growing group that uh, I thought it, was, it would be important to take a number of the people and highlight who was here, because people may not actually uh, know. First of all, who wasn't? Uh, we have greetings from Antonis Davanellos, who's a member of our sister group in Greece and of the coalition of the radical left. Uh, they were unable to attend, as was Léon Crémieux from the new anti-capitalist party in France, because they had elections a, week, a couple weeks ago, and they're all both involved in a set of meetings. China Miaville, whose books are available right around the corner, a comrade in Britain, member of the SWP, and prolific this year, and you'll see why as I go through uh, the list. 
From Puerto Rico, of course, we have our sister group, uh, Organización Socialista Internacionalista. Um, <laughs> Welcome again, uh, Rafael Hernandez, who is a leader of the FMPR Teachers Union. <laughs> and a founding member of the Worker Socialist Front uh, in uh, Puerto Rico. From Canada, an astounding uh, turnout of people, uh, which I'll, I'll go over very quickly. Three, three comrades who are involved with the uh, Socialist Voice website. Uh, John Riddell, for those who don't know, John, I, I believe that they've all left to catch, to, you know, it's an eight-hour drive to Canada or planes with John Riddell, uh, Ian Angus, and Suzanne Weiss, uh, who all work with Socialist Voice, uh, and another person that uh, should be noted, a longtime leader of the International Socialists in Canada, now a leading figure in the New Socialist Group, uh, and an old friend and member of the Historical Materialism Group in Toronto, David McNally, uh, who spoke um, From Australia, of course, our comrades in Socialist Alternative, uh, Mick and Sandra, there are several comrades from Socialist Alternative who are here. Uh, But I also want to acknowledge uh, the presence of uh, comrades from the Democratic Socialist Perspective uh, and Max Lane of uh, uh, the RSP, who spoke on, on Indonesia. People may have had an opportunity to hear Comrade Katz, Claudio Katz, who's a long-standing uh, uh, economist and activist, and he's here in the back. Argentina. I want to acknowledge the, the presence of, uh, the, the presence, <laughs> that's what a way to put it, okay, uh, the presence of Max and uh, Sebastian from Historical Materialism, one from Britain, I think, and one from France. Sebastian is also a member of the NPA. And, and uh, also welcome and acknowledge uh, Neil Davidson, who's a forthcoming Haymarket author, winner of the... <laughs> winner of the 2003 Isaac Deutscher Prize and an active member in the Socialist Workers' Party uh, in Britain today. And so I just thought that we should uh, welcome these comrades uh, to socialism and make sure that people uh, knew that they had participated in full. Uh, and I hope I haven't left anybody off my list to sum up, I just want to say uh, a few closing remarks. The, the, the title of the talk was, Where Do We Go From Here? And you can't, in, in my estimation, think about where to go without understanding where we've come from. Uh, Joel summed it up in, in a particularly Joel-esque manner. Uh, one of the problems, certainly in this country, but for the revolutionary left over the last three decades, over the last three decades of the, the victory of neoliberalism, has been the false starts uh, that we've had. And that that's a, that's a pervasive doubt uh, that people have. You throw yourself into the struggle uh, with no regrets. Many of us did when the ISO was formed in 1977. But it would be a lie to tell you, not without doubt at various moments as to the, 
you know, as to what the future would bring. I believe that we are entering a period which is substantially different to the last one, in part because we're emerging from 30 years. I won't spell out the details of the argument. I just want to spell out what the argument doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that the work of building a mass socialist party in this country is easy on an upward hill onwards and upwards from one socialism to the next until we take over every hotel in Chicago and so on and so forth. In fact, part of the argument is that we have only earned the right over the last 30 years, and it's been a long 30 years, to contest for bigger influence. That's right. Now, as much as we are proud of our organization, I think we have an enormous, you know, when, when the, the pragmatist Grand Canyon gazer, Alan Moss, <laughs> was speaking, you know, I mean, it filled, filled me with joy and pride. It's a little, like, no, old, older comrades will know. We used to sit around, three or four of us in an office, putting out, well, forget that story. <laughs> a monthly publication that as everybody, as the chairperson uh, kindly reminded us, sometimes used to appear three weeks late. Now that's kind of difficult on a monthly schedule to, to get it seven weeks into the thing. One of Alan's great achievements was to sack the editor of that, of that paper back then. And, <laughs> well, thank you for clapping, Peter. <laughs> and the paper hasn't been late one time since. <laughs> the point I'm making here is that we have moved tremendously as an organization that began with a few dozen people, very young organization, into an organization which now reflects more accurately the age groups, the class, you know, our class composition, of course, we want to transform towards being a working class organization, a multiracial organization. But on all things taken equally, we have done very, very well, and that earns us, it seems to me, the right to contest the right to be able to say to people, consider joining us. If you're not joining us, consider working with us and think about it. Debate with us, struggle in common with us. And the basic argument is this, that a economic crisis of the scale that is taking place today transforms all of the past. Economic crises does not in and of itself produce struggle as was clearly laid out yesterday, but it is an absolute precondition for the development of a mass socialist consciousness and of mass organizations. Will that path be easy? Anybody who lives in this country knows the contradictions that exist, where branches and individuals who came to this socialism mobilized magnificently. I don't want to go through all the stories and, and so forth. People will... <laughs> to say, I think it's now more than 50 comrades giving new meaning to the Lone Star State, um, actually, got, actually got funding from a trade union to help them come up here because of the work they've done. Now that's not a common... That's not a common feature. In European countries it is much more common to have the, the, the breaking down of the split between economic and political, to have notions of solidarity, to have ideas of bridging over one, one grouping of workers and another and so forth. I believe, as comrades argued last night, that we face the possibility of the renewal of those ideas and 
their attachment to real and living people, to their attachment to organization. It is not a question about how easy the road will be, but it's a question of how committed we are to developing that, to taking the opportunities, to bringing everybody we can along with us for what is a hard but absolutely necessary, in fact, really the only reason uh, to, to live life under this system, it seems to me, is to uh, live to fight, to overthrow it, and to create a better society. I'm reminded, and I'll end, I'll just end on this. Anybody, you know, if anybody has read CLR James, I hear we had a brilliant talk on CLR James this morning. I wasn't able to, to attend it. But there's a passage that's, that I don't know if Scott referred to it or not, that CLR James has at the end of uh, the revolutionary answer to the Negro question, I believe the pamphlet was called, at the bottom passage, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, anyone who understands, who knows the Afro-American population, who understands their sensibilities, who understands their fears, their ambitions and hopes, understands that that population will explode in anger and struggle and so on. It's some, some citation to that effect. Anybody who understands and knows the American working class knows the embitterment, the hopelessness, the anger that exists, which saw itself refracted in the celebration of Obama's victory. That victory will not transform capitalism. That's a no-brainer. I don't have to argue it here. But that anger, that hopelessness, and that bitterness needs to be channeled and redirected into hope, solidarity, and struggle. And that's a task that we rededicate ourselves to, to creation of a mass working class organization. Comrades, thank you very much. cities and towns to build the struggle. Uh, if people can just say just very quickly for these announcements. The first, um, is, secondly, um, a couple of Haymarket announcements. Um, the first is if people can please, please fill out the Haymarket sustainer forms that were distributed last night. They were on people's chairs um, and put them in the buckets at the door as you leave. Um, I actually finally had it explain to me why this is so important. Um, and it's because you need the money to pay the printing costs when the books are produced before you collect the money when you sell them. It seems like a no-brainer, but I didn't fully get it. <laughs> um, and so it's really important that when you become a sustainer, you help to make sure that our fall, fall publications and future publications um, come out. The second Haymarket announcement is that branches may place or pick up orders for new books at the Haymarket table. Um, Haymarket Books will be open for a short time after this session is over, so go and buy your remaining books. And finally, when we close up the bookstore, we'll need anyone who can lend a hand to help us pack, out, pack up and move out. And anyone who is available to help unload back at the Haymarket office, please see Joe Allen, who I assume you'll be able to find at the Haymarket table. And final announcement, anyone who is staying overnight tonight and who needs a place to stay 
and anyone in Chicago who can offer a place to stay should gather in the front of the auditorium here and Sherry Wolf, and who I'm sure you'll recognize, and Elizabeth Wrigley Field will organize a place for you to stay. Um, and that's actually our final announcement. Now I'm going to invite Paul up. If people didn't quite catch it, last night we sang the Internationale. The Internationale was the song of the Paris Commune and has been the song of worker struggle ever since. So I'm inviting Paul up so we can sing. Oh, he's right here. Sing it now. Actually, I, I wrote this song. Okay. Uh, are we going to get the right tune? Uh, how's that? Arise, uh, ye prisoners of starvation. Arise, ye wretched of the earth. For justice thunders condemnation. A better world's in birth. No more tradition shame shall bind us. Arise, ye slaves, no more in thrall. The earth shall rise on new foundation. We have been not, we shall be all. Tis the final conflict. Let each stand in their place. The The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.